Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, everyone. Feeling the autumn in the air. I'm happy. We are and we've been in Jesus' final week of his life. Many things are coming up to a head during this week of Jesus' life. Think of the pressure Jesus was feeling, knowing all that was going to happen. He knew what was coming, and that way he was not like us, but I think that would have been put, putting the pressure even more on him, knowing all that was yet to come. He, he had been telling his disciples about the outcome, how this all would be resolved, and even though he repeated it, they were unable to understand and to grasp the depth and the meaning of that prediction. He had dinner in Bethany where Mary anointed him, preparing him for his burial, as he said. Sunday saw his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday, he cleansed the temple and had his authority question, as Robert was sharing with us. And now on Tuesday, he's still there at the temple teaching. And for the next few lessons that we're going to be presenting, both on Sunday and Wednesday, we're still going to be on things that happen on this Tuesday. It was a long Tuesday, a long day. His Tuesday was one of the longest and most grueling days that he had that last week of his life. And it started with leaders questioning his authority, as Robert covered last week. Today, we're going to see how the religious leaders were more determined than ever to trap Jesus. So they said they wanted to trap him. They wanted to see if he was going to answer in some kind of error so that they could somehow trap him. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know how they were planning on doing it. They didn't really know who they were dealing with, did they? <laughs> and so what is the significance or what is the definition of that word entrapment? And it's, it means it's the action of tricking someone into committing a crime, something that we're very familiar with in this day and age to secure their prosecution. So they wanted to trap him in some kind of inconsistency so that they could say, aha, see, you know, you're against the Romans or, or you against Herod or whatever it was that they were trying to trap him in. So we start reading here in Matthew 22, 15. It says, then the Pharisees went away and planned to trap Jesus into saying the wrong thing. There's the entrapment. They sent their disciples to him along with Herod's followers. And this is very interesting. We have the Pharisees and Herod's followers, two groups of people that would, you would never see them together because they were completely opposed politically speaking. Yet, you know, uh, what, are the, what is it saying that sworn enemies made great bedfellows? I forget how that goes. <laughs> but now they're coming together against their common enemy, Jesus. 
And they're trying to see who the smartest and sharpest disciples are so that they could kind of ask him a question and trap him into saying the wrong thing. So they're sending their smartest uh, people uh, after him, along with Herod's followers. They said to him, teacher, and notice the flattery here. I don't know if you can detect the flattery in the way that they're presenting this question. Teacher, we know that you tell the truth and that you teach the truth about the way of God. Wow, what a, what a nice way to butter him up. You don't favor individuals because of who they are. So they were extremely flattering, thinking they could manipulate Jesus by buttering him up. But Jesus knows what's up. So tell us what you think. Is it right to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Supposedly a yes or no answer, right? Yes, it's right to pay taxes or no, it's not right to pay taxes. But see, Jesus isn't caught in this yes or no trap. <laughs> Maybe like we would be. <laughs> you know, he, say, he doesn't answer yes and he doesn't answer no. And we can learn a lot from how Jesus approaches these questions that were really set as a trap. As I'm sure we've all at some point in time or another have faced a situation like this with somebody that's trying to trick us or trying to set a trap for us in the way that they're asking a question. They're not asking because they really want to know the answer. They're asking because they're trying to make you look bad or trying to set you up before an audience or something like that. I certainly found myself in that position many times. And so typically it's a yes or no answer, an answer of entrapment or a question of entrapment. But we're going to learn how Jesus answers in a very good way because he's not focusing on them. He's focusing on the people, on the rest of the people that are hearing. They still need to learn something from this. If Jesus would have answered, yes, it's right to pay taxes, uh, then the Pharisees would have been able to condemn him before the people for supporting the Romans. And if he answered no, that's why the Herodians were there, the Herodians would report him to the Romans for not being loyal to civil authorities. So they thought, we've got the perfect trap for Jesus. Entrapment, pure and simple. They were not interested in the right answer. They were just interested in only trapping Jesus. But other people around Jesus, remember, he's teaching at the temple. He's got a great crowd there. This was a time for education, a time for teaching. So for the sake of the rest of the people and the conscience of those with wicked motives, Jesus answers with the wisdom only God can give. We see here that he recognizes their evil plan. So he always responds with a question. Jesus typically doesn't answer. He asks another question. That's called the Socratic method of teaching. You teach by asking questions. Best way to teach. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? That's the first thing he asked them. Show me a coin used to pay taxes. So they brought him a coin. He said to them, whose face and name is this? So just for historical clarity, that, that by the way is a picture of the coin that they would have shown to Jesus in his day and age. I don't know how clearly you can see it, but I can make it maybe a slightly bigger. No, not really. <laughs> Just explaining what's on the coin. So the face part or the heads part of the coin, you know, we got heads, we got tails. And by the way, that heads or tails thing that we still use today, guess where that came from? 
that came from way back when, <laughs> way back from Roman time, that use of heads or tails. So on the heads part of the coin, you could clearly see the face of Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus. That was the full name he called himself, or Emperor Tiberius, who was in power from 14 uh, to 37 AD during the times of Jesus. And there was an inscription all the way around the coin. You might not be able to make it from here, but it, it's, it seems like gibberish. You know, that wouldn't make any sense to us, but it actually has a meaning. The T or the TI stands for Tiberius. That's what's the way to shorten it. Then, of course, you can see Caesar right in there. Divi August, Divi Aug is Divi Augusti. F is for Phileas, and then the full last name there is spelled out Augustus. It's just that the U wasn't there in Roman times. They used the D, right? So what does that really mean? It means Tiberius Caesar, the August son of the divine Augustus, because he claimed to have divine rights to the throne. And Augustus just means revered, majestic one. Okay, it's like an appeal to divinity. So that's what was on the coin. And they all knew what was on the coin. So they replied, the emperors. And he said to them, very well. Hey, you said the answer. You gave me the answer. Give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor. And give to God what belongs to God. What an amazing answer, huh? They were the ones actually giving the answer. Jesus didn't answer. He just asked the question, well, who is it on the coin? And they were the ones giving the answer. Incredibly smart and awesome way to answer someone that may be trying to trap you and who's not really interested in the answer that you may give. Like I said before, teaching in this way by posing questions, it's called the Socratic method. And it's a masterful way of educating. Good teachers, this is how they teach their students, by asking questions and leading these students to the answer, not just by giving the answer themselves. What does this mean for us, though, 2,000 years later? I believe that in giving this answer, Jesus is teaching us that we have a duty to fulfill our civil responsibilities, one of them to pay taxes. After all, we know that that's a teaching in the New Testament. Uh, we have to pay our taxes, give honor to whom honor is due. Pay your taxes, pay your tribute, is how they would say it in Bible language. After all, that's what we know the Holy Spirit is teaching. Uh, we render to the United States government, to Uncle Sam, the face of the money, right, that belongs to him. And then we render to God, this is the hardest one, it's easy to pay taxes. It's very easy. All you got to do is calculate them and pay them, right? It's harder to give God what is due to God. So if you're having a hard time paying your taxes, how much of a harder time are you going to have giving to God what is his? Because that's the real difficult thing here. He really silenced them with his response. They were surprised to hear this. This was not what they were expecting. And they left him alone and went away after that. You can be a very effective teacher of the gospel. If you pay attention, if you do what Jesus did, and not get sidetracked by the motives of other people, 
because people are going to have all kinds of motive and asking you a question. But if you are focused on glorifying God and you answer honestly, you answer logically, you answer calmly, you will be able to fulfill what God wants to do through you. So that's one test. And Jesus passed it. Then on the same day, right, says we're still on the Tuesday, on the same day, the Sadducees, who say that people will never come back to life, came to Jesus. So who are the Sadducees? Well, right there it tells you. It gives you a, a definition, basically, of what they believe or what they did not believe. The Sadducees didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They thought that when you died, that was it. You ceased to exist. You know, you, you passed into oblivion. Not too different from what some people believe today, right? So the Sadducees, that's what they believed. They didn't believe in coming back to life. They didn't believe that there was going to be a heaven. They believed that this is it. You know, what you see is what you get. This is it. And after this, it's all done. So keep that in mind so that you can see the, how they were trying to trap him in the question that they asked. They wanted Jesus' premise to look ridiculous by the question they posed to him. They probably had a chuckle seeing the Pharisees fail at their attempt of entrapment because they were probably right there saying, ah, you know, look at this guy. They, they didn't do too well here. Well, let's see how he's going to answer our question. So that's when they came up. So they said, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies childless, his brother should marry his widow and have children for his brother. This is a common common law. Everybody knew about this leveret law, which is described in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. By the way, this is the same law that Naomi used to justify Ruth marrying Boaz. This is the premise that she presented to Boaz in order to marry Ruth. Why? Because Naomi, although she was married and had two sons, what happened to her two sons? They died without having children. So Naomi didn't have any inheritance left. So she continued her inheritance through Ruth. So that's why it makes sense when you read the book of Ruth, when Ruth had her child, who really claimed that child? Naomi. It says it was her child. And through Ruth bearing children, now Naomi had a legacy. And that's all according to this leveret law that comes up in the book of Ruth. So that's the question that they pose, ironically enough, having to do with the resurrection, as you're going to see later on, because they're going to bring about the resurrection, even though they didn't believe in it. But they were trying to put this premise out there, because in their minds, they said, oh, let's, let's see how the resurrection works out with this scenario that we're going to present Jesus here. So they present their hypothetical situation. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. Since he had no children, he left his widow to his brother. The second brother also died, as well as the third and the rest of the seven brothers. Highly unlikely scenario, <laughs> but probable, you could say. And then at the end, the woman died. So then they proceed. Now, when the dead come back to life, whose wife will she be? All the seven brothers had been married to her. So they're like, gotcha, Jesus. <laughs> See, your, your resurrection, your afterlife doesn't make any sense. How is, how is she going to be the wife of seven guys? 
they know that that wouldn't make sense in this life. How is it going to make sense in the resurrection? So they thought they trapped him, didn't he? You know, the, the purpose of this law, of course, was to preserve families within this life to ensure that whatever land was inherited, whatever property was inherited, stayed with the family, as in the situation with Naomi and Ruth. But they didn't think, they thought that the afterlife was going to be kind of like the same deal as this life. So Jesus answers, you are mistaken. You don't know what you're talking about because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know God's power. Two things he points out. You have no idea of the scriptures. You think you know the scriptures, but apparently you missed something in the scriptures. And number two, you don't really know who God is. It's interesting he brings up these two flaws with this hypothetical scenario that they were asking. When we are ignorant of the scriptures and clueless about God's power, what does that mean? We don't know God's power. Well, it means that you're treating God within your own limited perspective. You ascribe to God uh, your own limits, your own limitations. You're not ready to embrace a God that is literally outside of whatever box it is that you're trying to define in him. And, and we as a people tend to do that quite often, don't we? And so when we do that to God, we are going to end up with a lot of error in our doctrine and with a lot of error in our faith, as it was the case for these Sadducees. And the Pharisees are not too far behind either. So first thing Jesus addresses has to do with the power of God. He says, when people come back to life, they don't marry. Rather, they're like the angels in heaven. Jesus is trying to tell them eternal life is not like biological life. And I've been distinguishing between those two in my last few sermons. When I talk about the bios life, it's a short life. We're born, we reach an apex, we decline, and it's over. That's bios, that's biological life. Jesus came to bring Zoe life. That's a completely different thing. The two are not the same, but the Sadducees didn't know how to distinguish that. They didn't know, they were ignorant of God's power. If God could create men from dust, could he not easily raise the dust of those who had died, refashion them into beings with bodies of glory like the angels? Well, those whose gods live in their own minds and are fashioned after their own thoughts won't be able to fathom the power of God. They won't be able to know. Plus, now in the New Testament, it has been revealed to us that death dissolves marriage. Marriage is only for this biological life. That's it, because the purpose of marriage is, one of the purposes anyway, is to reproduce, fill the earth. We're not going to need to fill heaven. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty full, I, I guess. I don't know, right? I'm assuming. But death dissolves marriage. There's no more marriage after you're raised from the dead. Some of you are like, whew. <laughs> we will all have spiritual bodies in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that in quite some detail. Quite some fascinating detail. It leaves us in wonder. Wow, 
how is it going to be? How will our bodies be? You know, we have a few metaphors here on earth. We got the, the metaphor of the caterpillar and the butterfly. It's the same creature. It's got two different bodies. One of them is ugly and fat, and you know, kind of like what we would describe ourselves in this life. And then the other one is this awesome, beautiful, colorful. It can even fly. Caterpillars, you know, probably looking at butterflies are like, what? They can't relate. But that's an amazing metaphor to leave us in awe and wonder about the power of God. Something the Sadducees were not really thinking about. They were limiting themselves to just what they could see. They were just being pure materialists and not giving any thought at all to the awesome power of God. So if in the, if in the next life we're not going to be in this body, that means that all the appetites tied to this body are not going to pass to our next existence. Thank God, right? <laughs> we're not going to be hungry. We're, we're not going to miss food, though, because heaven is always described as a banquet, isn't it? So there must be something better than food over there. You know, and it's not going to make you fat because you're not going to have this body, right? So that's a good thing to look forward to. We're not going to have sexual needs, you know, thank God. And we're not going to be distracted by all kinds of physical appetites that are really, really distracting for us in this life. So it's a completely new order of things that the Sadducees, you know, they, they just, ah, we're not going to believe in that because they probably reflect that mindset of people who want things in a box that they can measure, understand, and explain. But you can't do that with God, as Jesus is saying here. You don't know the power of God. You just, you just don't know it. Then he points out where they were mistaken, scripturally speaking. And now you tell me, but Pedro, you just gave us a lot of scriptures. Isn't that the scripture part? Well, those are scriptures we know now in the New Testament that have been revealed, but they didn't know it back then. But Jesus now is going to point out a scripture that maybe you and I didn't think of when explained this way. But it's an amazing response and a quite simple one where Jesus is saying, haven't you read what God told you about the dead coming back to life? He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Wow. What a simple point to make. He's referring, by the way, to a quote from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. When God spoke to Moses from the bush. Now, when God speaks to Moses from the bush and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where were those three at the time of Moses' life? Were they alive? They had passed a long time ago. But wow, if they would have just thought, wait, wait a minute, why is he still calling himself the God of these three dead people. <laughs> well, Jesus says he's not the God of the dead. If anyone's dead, it's you, <laughs> right? We are the walking dead. Those who have passed before us, they're alive somehow. They still are. We're the ones that are in danger here. We're the walking dead. Unless you get yourself into Jesus then you have the hope to be alive after this life. God describes himself 
as the God of those who are living. Therefore, Jesus says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. They're not dead. They're biologically dead, and they're thanking God for that. <laughs> but they're in Zoe. They're in Zoe. They are in eternal life. And that's the hope that we have. We want to be open and looking for that regeneration ourselves to make sure that we can say, well, he is my God too, because I'm going to be alive. That's the whole point he's saying here. And of course, the crowds, they were amazed at his teaching. They were like, wow, that is so simple, yet so profound. That's the truth. Notice how Jesus answered these questions. Notice how he answered them. We can learn from how he answers these people to leave them amazed. It's important for us as Christians to explain at times why we do things. Sometimes you may think, oh man, this person doesn't get it. But if you take your time to explain, if you're patient with them, then you can do as Jesus is doing. Think about how many times Jesus, and he did say it at times, didn't he? How long do I have to put up with you? How much longer do I have to be here with you? So, you know, at times he was like, ah, you know, like sometimes parents can get, uh, or sometimes how we can get with each other. Sometimes how husbands can get with their wives and vice versa. We lack patience, but we can learn a lot from Jesus to be patient and use the scriptures to explain our answers as Jesus used in these occasions. It's important that even when we're surrounded by people with motives that may not be pure, that we stay focused on the situation so that we can glorify God, not just in, by what we answer, but how we're answering them as well. Don't forget that other people may be listening, other people around you. The one that may challenge you is not the, the, the person to focus on, but the others. So we're not done yet with this Long Tuesday. These are just two events that happened on this Long Tuesday. There are many more things that happened on this Tuesday of Jesus last week. It was a week full of difficulties, challenges, but also evidences of God's love and the things that Jesus did and how he responded. About one-third of the gospel accounts, when you sum it up, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one-third of those accounts are devoted in, to get into the detail of this last week of Jesus' life. The Holy Spirit helped the apostles remember all these details for this last week for generations of humankind. Our lives, like I said before, are short. They are very short duration, the bios, our physical lives. The experience here is really limited and really only useful in the grand scheme of things for us to learn how to lean on the Lord. The goal here in this biological life is for us to acknowledge the power, the authority, and the divinity of God, that he is King of kings, Lord of lords, and in complete control. That's the goal. If you go back to Daniel and you read what he said to Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar became an animal of sorts, remember that? What was the whole point of the experience? To say, Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. God is the ruler of all. 
That was the point <laughs> of Nebuchadnezzar's life to get to that point. And so it's not different for us to understand and assume that all the lives here, that our point in living here is to at one point reach that conscious, that consciousness that God is in control, that he is the ruler. Every experience afforded here is about learning that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Keep that in mind through whatever you go through in this life and keep yourself humble to make those realizations so that the Holy Spirit can direct you to regeneration because that's how regeneration begins to occur by us making that first acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. I mean, that is the work Jesus came to do. He came to take us out of this bios and secure for us an eternal life, a Zoe eternal, real living, by the way, because this life is short and it's going to end because of sin. The opportunity to be regenerated and renewed in order to be welcomed into our heavenly homes. The only thing that stands in between uh, this and that life is our sin. Sin stands between us and eternal life. Ever since we've allowed sin to rule our life, it has brought us nothing but death and thoughts of death and anxiety and all the things tied to the passions of this flesh. Ever since we allowed sin to rule our life, it has, it has just brought confusion. Sin will be the death of you, literally. Not sickness, although some people do die, we say, because they got sick. Some people die, we say, because they had an accident of some kind. But in reality, the Bible says, no, it is sin. That's why you die. Sin brings about death. We have to acknowledge that. We have a problem of sin. As the Bible says, we fall short. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. However, the gospel comes into play here to show us how much God is invested in making sure sin does not remain a problem, does not remain an obstacle for us to choose Zoe eternal. This we call the good news, the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, depicted by those three symbols up there. The first symbol, the down arrow, means God's willingness to come in the person of his son, to personally visit us, to personally walk in our way, to become familiar with us in an intimate way. And of course, he died, he was buried, he was raised. And the last arrow coming down means he is coming back. That is the day of reckoning. We call it the day of judgment or the last day. Not that there's not going to be any more days after. That's not going to be any more earthly days. <laughs> That's the last earthly day, maybe. But there's going to be another whole existence, eternal life, that Jesus wants you to participate. He wants you to know it, and he wants you to know it now, not later, now, through this good news, because the end of all things is near and the time to choose regeneration will closely come to an end either personally by your life ending or collectively by jesus returning 
The first step we take into this good news, we call that baptism. That's, those are the wavy lines there representing water. Because when we choose, when we take that first step, acknowledging that, yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And I want to make him my Savior. And so the first step of that faith is expressed in your desire to join him in this good news by dying with him, being buried with him, not physically, but symbolically through the gospel, through baptism. And in the same way Jesus was raised from the dead, you two are raised from that watery grave of baptism to begin Zoe. So we can literally begin Zoe now in this biological body. Isn't that something? I, I don't know how it, how it works, but I trust God that it has started. The Bible says that inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Those of us who've been regenerated, even though outwardly we are decaying day by day. I don't have to convince you of that. Right, But I'm, right, I'm trying here to convince you that, yes, that inwardly you can be renewed. And every, every day, newer and newer and newer, despite whatever is happening to your outside, that is the power of God that the Sadducees doubted. When Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. May that not be our case. May we, may we be convinced of the power of God and of the scriptures by carefully studying them, not just to rattle off verses or rattle off trivia. That's not the point of studying the Bible, but to know the heart of God, to get to know my Lord, my Savior, to get to know his character so that I can emulate it right here in this biological life. Because I am convinced that as Jesus was crucified for our sake, we too now must live a life where we crucify our desires in this bios life, in this flesh, so that we can do the will of God and eventually be welcomed into our heavenly home. So as regenerated people, we now strive to walk in this new and living way. We no longer walk according to the flesh. We're no longer zombies. We leave that lifestyle behind. And now we're in this new and living way, declaring our main purpose to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And now being used as instruments to carry the peace of the gospel everywhere we go, as hard as it may be sometimes. But we don't walk according to the flesh anymore but according to the Spirit. And so I pray that after services today, if this message has touched you in some way or another, we can have an opportunity to pray together, to confess and open our heart out and present before God what are some of the things that are getting in your way to living wholeheartedly for God, to pull out all the stops and give yourself to God fully. So that you can also experience Zoe right now. You can. You can. Let us pray after services. Come forward with a willing heart. A heart that wants renewal. Wants to stop leaning on anxiety, fear, or worry. Let your heart turn to Jesus to find peace. Have a great afternoon.